Our Father in heaven, we pray as we come to your word, we confess that in coming before the Bible, we are coming near to the Lord himself, that he who has the word has Christ himself. We pray, Lord, as we consider what is revealed in this passage, that you would reveal your son to us, to each one, and that he would meet every need that we have. Uh, I could not possibly know all the needs of each person that has entered this room today. All of them are known to you. We pray that you would send forth your son, the Lord Jesus, through preaching to meet the needs of each one, to save all of our souls. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. One thing we must understand and appreciate about the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, is that though the writers themselves know and believe and bear witness to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, they don't assume all their readers are convinced of that point. They don't assume all their readers believe this man, Jesus, who by the time Matthew wrote, maybe in the 70s, was so well known. Uh, Matthew doesn't assume that every person reading his gospel account is convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, or would even know what that means. One thing we have to understand and appreciate about the gospel accounts is each gospel writer is mounting a case, mounting an argument, revealing the person of Jesus to us and showing us, revealing to us that He is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ, the longed-for anointed one of the Jews, and that He is God's own Son sent incarnate into the world, the God-man. Matthew does this brilliantly. He is mounting a case in these opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, It begins with the first chapter with the genealogy, and it starts with a bang. It's revealed in the genealogy, which, if you're honest, maybe you skip in your devotions, which you should not skip in your devotions. That striking statement in the very first verses, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know God promised Through Abraham, there was a coming one, there was a seed, a son of Abraham that would one day come, and he would bring blessing to all the nations of the world, not just the Jews, but salvation, deliverance to the nations. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, in passages like 1 Chronicles 19 or 2 Samuel 7 or many of the Psalms, many of the statements of the prophets, you know that there was going to be a coming son of David, a king who would reign on his father's throne forever. Uh, who would deliver his people fully and finally, and who would establish shalom, and who would reign over the nations, and would be the deliverer of his people. Well, then we have the birth narratives in the end of Matthew 1 and into chapter 2, Jesus' early childhood. It appears what Matthew is most interested in doing in those sections of the gospel is to show us how Jesus fulfills many Old Testament scriptures. Numerous scriptures are mentioned that spoke to what the birth and the early days of the Messiah would be like. And Jesus is situated in fulfillment of those promises. Then in chapter 3, it was foretold, right, that there would come that voice crying in the wilderness, who would prepare the way of the Lord. Who is that? It's John the Baptist. And here is John, and he's crying in the wilderness, and he is preaching the gospel, and he's preparing the way for the Christ. And in time, Jesus himself comes to John to be baptized, and John baptizes him, and the Spirit descends upon Jesus and remains on him, and the voice is heard from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately then in chapter 4, Jesus is led up into the wilderness, and there he has his first confrontation with Satan, at least his first recorded confrontation with Satan. And Jesus there in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, succeeds where the first Adam failed, 
we begin to realize this Jesus is different. Uh, this Jesus, perhaps, is that son of Adam, that son of Eve who is to come. Where every other man had failed before him, he withstood temptation. And he obeyed his father. And he obeyed the commandments of God. Well, then in the latter verses of chapter 4, Jesus calls his first disciples. We have a summary of Jesus' ministry that he comes to preach the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and that he comes to display uh, the kingdom of heaven and his mighty works. And then he goes up on the mountain. And in chapter 5 through 7, we have glorious teaching from the Lord. Uh, teaching that we considered over the course of nine months together. Uh, that famous Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, standing as a kind of new Moses, comes to give God's law definitively, finally, in continuity with all that God said he would do and what, he said, and what God's word said he would be. He stands to give God's words. God's commands are in his mouth and he speaks them. And what is the effect his teaching has on the crowds that looked on? We read it at the end of Matthew 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Uh, this would be uh, like saying today, he, he spoke as one having authority, not like uh, preachers like Alex the Prima, not like teachers in equip classes, uh, not like professors in seminaries. No, this man spoke as God himself with divine fiat to reveal the will of God to the people. You see, Matthew's mounting his argument. Well, now in chapters 8 and 9, which we begin today, We've had the announcement of the presence of the kingdom of God in Christ. We've had the preaching of the kingdom. Now we're going to have displayed the power of the kingdom. Jesus is going to do things only God can do. It was foretold that when the Christ comes, he would heal all our diseases, cleanse us of all of our afflictions. And in one miracle after another in chapters 8 through 9, that's revealed about Jesus. We're going to see many miracles performed in chapters 8 through 9, revealing that Jesus can do what only God can do. This morning, we look just at verses 1 through 4, the first of the miracles, the cleansing of the leper. I'd like to open up this passage under two main headings. Let's consider first the leper, and secondly, the Lord. The leper and the Lord, an outline easy enough, a five-year-old could follow it. The leper, and then we'll look at the Lord. First of all, consider with me the leper. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And I imagine we're to, a, to, to see the crowds coming with him to this next encounter. Commentators debate that. Did the crowds dissipate after a while? I think the crowds are probably still with him. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed it. And behold, a leper came to him. It's the only description we're given of him, a leper. We're not given his name. He's identified with a descriptor. He's simply described as a leper, one who has leprosy. Now, I don't mean to read words into this, but I think we should just pause and appreciate right up front that this is how this man would have been identified in society. He might have been Joseph the leper or John the leper or Luke the leper. The material point is, oh, the most important aspect of his personality, of his identity in Jewish society is in fact that he was a leper. An outcast, one who is unclean, uh, seen to be cursed of God, a leper came to him. Now, what do we know about the condition this man has? What do we know about leprosy? People today actually still get leprosy. It's very rare. Uh, it's called Hansen's disease now, we think. Uh, but cases are exceedingly rare, but not unheard of. 
Uh, and I should add, we're not exactly sure modern-day Hansen's disease corresponds exactly with leprosy in ancient times, but there seems to be overlap there. But in any event, what we can tell is that leprosy in the Bible was a kind of chronic infectious disease that manifested most visibly in the skin. In fact, it was thought to be a skin disease because it would show up most clearly, most visibly in the skin. It was likely caused by a bacterial infection that attacked the peripheral nervous system, and it was a terrible disease. It was one of the most dreaded diseases, perhaps the most dreaded disease that a person could be diagnosed with. Uh, several symptoms that were quite miserable. Uh, severe damage to the skin. If you saw someone with leprosy, typically they would have rashes all over their skin, perhaps uh, boils, ulcers, external and internal that would uh, pusillate, and, and it was quite visible. You would have these open sores uh, cosmetically seen on the skin, on the body of the person who had leprosy. And moreover, the person with leprosy would experience severe nerve damage. Uh, nerve damage so bad at first it would cause very bad neuropathic pain, but then eventually the nerves would be so worn down that leprous people couldn't feel pain anymore. And one of the big problems with having leprosy is that lepers would often injure themselves because they couldn't feel pain. Uh, for many lepers, they were so worn down in their nerves they could stick their hand in the fire and not feel it. That's how numb they had become in their uh, nerve endings. Oh, what's more, leprosy could also cause tissue damage, uh, leading to various deformities and disfigurements of the body, twisting of the limbs and joints. This was another tell that someone had leprosy, especially in the feet and the hands. Uh, your feet and hands would not grow properly. They called uh, the disfigurement of the hand claw hand. It was not, uh, lepers were not able to grip things as they would like. Their joints were not working as they should. They were contorted. Some walked often with a limp or couldn't walk at all. This disease was believed also to be highly contagious and seldom met with a cure. In fact, a cure was regarded by most as effectively impossible. A curing leprosy was essentially seen as equivalent to raising someone from the dead and something that only God can do. In fact, we have an interesting account in 2 Kings chapter 5 that illustrates this point. You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Kings 5, the Syrian commander Naaman, Syrian commander Naaman contracts leprosy and so the king of Syria sends his commander Naaman, who has leprosy, uh, to the king of Israel, King Jehoram, uh, in order that Jehoram might heal Naaman from this leprosy. The king of Syria had been led to believe that there was a man in Israel who could work miracles and could heal people of diseases. And in 2 Kings 5, we read this, and the king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read... When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And listen how the king of Israel responds to Horam. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? In other words, what is King Jehoram saying? No one but God can cure someone of leprosy. Am I God that I could raise the dead? That's the equivalent of what curing a man of leprosy is like, raising someone from the dead. And this was how it was held to be in the popular imagination. Leprosy was indeed an awful disease. Horrible symptoms, contagious, incurable. But we've not yet gotten to the worst part about leprosy. The worst part about leprosy was not the terrible symptoms and the physical discomfort and deformity. It wasn't that it was, as some thought, highly contagious and practically incurable. Leprosy was the dreaded disease for a far more profound reason. And this is the reason. According to the law of Moses, 
those who contracted leprosy, were to be regarded as ceremonially unclean, ritually unclean, and consequently, by order of divine law, were to be regarded as social outcasts. Those who contracted leprosy would be quarantined outside the camp of the Israelites, and this forced quarantine often lasted their entire lives. You've heard of leper colonies. Uh, That's sort of what we have here, Uh, a place where lepers were sent off to be outside the fellowship, outside the worship, outside the camp, so that they might not infect other people with their uncleanness. In the book of Leviticus in chapters 13 and 14, there are detailed instructions given for what to do when a case of leprosy is discovered in the camp. It's very hard to read, actually. If you have a weak stomach, it's, it's quite uncomfortable uh, to read. It's about diagnosing cases of leprosy, how to diagnose this uncleanness in the camp. But after a lot of instructions on how to do that in chapter 13, at the very end of that chapter, we read in verse 45 these words, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. Often leprous hair would turn white and it would become very thin and it would fall out. Let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Leprosy carried with it the stigma of uncleanness, shame, and isolation. And it meant a life of loneliness as long as you live. The Israelites were commanded never to touch someone with leprosy. Can you imagine that? You can track leprosy, and God's command is, don't anyone go near or touch that person ever again. That's the command. Can you imagine never being touched in any way ever again? If you did touch a leper, you would contract defilement yourself. You yourself would become unclean if you touched someone with leprosy. You were not even to go near a leper. Parents would tell their children when they uh, left uh, in the morning, don't talk to strangers, watch out for wild animals, and whatever you do, don't go anywhere near a leper. If your garment or clothes touched someone with leprosy, the law commanded that those clothes were to be burned immediately. To be a leper was to be a social pariah. And lepers were to be put outside the community and were to live alone, never to be embraced, never to be touched, never to be restored to the community. And we read in another passage in Numbers 5, the Israelites were faithful to obey this command of the Lord. This was a matter of God's law. This is what we're to imagine, a husband and wife together. And it's discovered the husband has some kind of rash that appears on his arm. At first, they think they could ignore it, maybe it'll go away in a couple of days, and it begins to spread, and it turns into open wounds and sores on the man. And there's the fear, the thought, could this be the dreaded disease? And that man was to go in faith to the priest and present himself for an examination. And if it was concluded that he, in fact, had leprosy, in obedience to God's law, he was to be quarantined and to be removed outside the camp, removed from his family. You might imagine the husband saying to his wife, honey, God knows what he's doing. The will of the Lord is good. God has called us to this. We'll honor his command. And in obedience, lepers would go outside the camp, considered unclean, and in many ways cursed. Now, why so severe 
a command. Why such censure on those who had leprosy? Is this just God being a meanie or something? Is this that grumpy old God of the Old Testament, you know, always giving severe commands that we can never expect anybody to obey? Well, just appreciate two reasons, I think, that are behind this command of the Lord. Uh, First of all, this command served a very practical function. In an era, in an era, excuse me, before modern medicine, there was no other way to contain diseases. Here's an infectious disease that would destroy your life. And in mercy, God made provisions so that the whole camp would not become infected. The only option in those days would have been quarantine. So there's a natural reason, a medical reason why, a practical reason why, lepers had to be removed from the camp. They carried what was believed to be a highly infectious disease that would infect the whole camp. If let to run free, and God makes provision for medical biological quarantine. But there's a second reason that I think is far more profound, and this is often lost on people who live in our context today. God sewed into the fabric of nature and into the fabric of his own revealed law many symbols of human uncleanness as a way of showing his separateness from human sin as a way of showing his holiness, his purity, his cleanness. And the sacrificial system and the ceremonial system and the civil system of the Old Testament was full of these signs, these symbols of uncleanness. So there were laws about washing bowls, and there were laws about how the tabernacle was to be set up, and there were laws about certain garments and how they were to be put together, and even how men should shave their beards in certain ways and not in other ways. There were all these laws that were pointing to the holiness and cleanliness of God's people and, of course, God himself. And leprosy was one of those signs, those symbols, sewn into the body of some among the people of Israel that showed forth the uncleanness, symbolized the uncleanness of humanity and the need to be made clean. And that God is above and beyond and apart from all of our human uncleanness and unholiness and defilement. Now, we should not imagine, we should not believe that everybody who became a leper became a leper by virtue of their own individual sin. Leprosy was rather a natural scourge on humanity in general that some people would contract. Maybe, maybe not in connection to their own sin. But it was a sign of the sinfulness of man. And in a very real sense, if you had leprosy, you bore in your body a symbol of human uncleanness. A symbol of how much unlike God we are. And how much we need him. How much we need to be cleansed by him if we're to enter into his presence. This is the nature of this man's condition. Physical agony. Visibly defaced and deformed. Isolated from friends and family. Ostracized by society. Regarded as ritually unclean and impure. No one touches lepers. Consider with me though next this man's faith. We've seen his condition, this disease of leprosy this man has. Consider with me now his faith. We read in verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, (coughs) saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Just briefly consider what this man does and what a remarkable expression of faith this is. Apparently, this man had heard of Jesus. He didn't just happen upon Jesus. He went looking for Jesus. He had heard tell of his ministry. 
and the kinds of things Jesus was saying and doing, and what was true of perhaps his family lineage, what remarkable things had marked his life already. You might remember we read at the end of chapter 4 of Matthew these words, verse 23, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This man, this leper, apparently had heard of Jesus. And this man is convinced that Jesus could heal him. Jesus can cleanse him. So much so, listen, that he violates social convention. Not only social convention, even the Mosaic law itself. And leaves the leper colony or wherever he resided in isolation, he leaves it to go and find Jesus. That in and of itself is an expression of his faith, going to Jesus, coming to Jesus, bringing himself in all his uncleanness before Jesus. If Jesus is not who he says he is, this man is wasting his time and being disobedient to God himself. But if Jesus is who he says he is, this man is responding in the only appropriate way, with faith in his power to heal and restore. This leper has gone looking for Jesus, and eventually he finds him. Somewhere in Galilee, he finds him, and he, in faith, approaches Jesus and bows before him. Now imagine the scene. Like I said, I think the crowds are probably still there. At least Jesus' disciples are there. But whoever is there, once this man is seen, remember, he's, he's got the limp, he's got the hands, he's got the sores and the rashes all over him. Once this man is seen, everyone backs away. What is he doing here? Who told him he could leave the quarantine? That was mandated by the law of Moses. No one touch him. Someone get the priest. And this man ostracized his entire life. Hadn't been touched by a solitary soul in years. In humility. In fear and trembling. And in faith. Approaches Jesus, bows before Jesus, and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't say, if God wills. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. What's this man saying? Remember the words of King Jehoram. Am I God that I could heal a leper? This man is saying, I believe, Jesus, you can do what only God can do. I believe you to be the Messiah. And I believe you to be the one whom God himself has anointed. You alone can heal me and render me clean. You alone could do what the law of Moses could never do. 
You alone can do what the Levitical priest could never do. You can do what the scribes and the Pharisees could never do. You alone can make me clean. This man risked everything in his request. In faith, listen, he stakes all that he is on all that Jesus is. He comes, a wretched and unclean man, convinced that Jesus alone, if he wills, can make him clean. Friends, that is the essence of saving faith itself. There is no other kind of faith that saves. All right, we've considered the leper. Consider with me now, secondly, the Lord. Consider with me the Lord. Two things I want us to see here. First, briefly, his compassion. And secondly, his power. First, his compassion. Jesus doesn't respond to this man with censure. He responds with compassion. In fact, in the parallel account of this event in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, most English translations say that Jesus, when he saw the leper, was moved with pity. He pitied the man, had compassion on the man. Jesus doesn't recoil from this man as the rest of the crowds do. He doesn't censure this man. He doesn't withdraw from this man. He doesn't rebuke him for his sinful presumption. Jesus doesn't tell him, go back to where you belong. Get this unclean man out of my sight. Don't you know who I am? No, Jesus accepts this man. He receives this man. He receives this man because this man has understood exactly who Jesus is. And he is responding exactly as he ought to the truth about who Jesus is. Friends, Jesus, listen, he wants unclean people to come to him. He wants defiled, dirty, filthy, sinful people to come to him. He says to the Pharisees in Luke, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I am the great physician. Bring the sick people to me. Bring the unclean people to me. Bring the sinners to me. It's for the sinners that I have come. Perhaps everyone this man ever knew Recoiled from him. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't withdraw from any unclean person who comes to him in faith. And in response to the man's faith-filled plea, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You could rid me of this terrible disease. You can undo all the sorrows and pain of my life with a word. You can make me clean. Jesus in compassion says, I am willing. What you want is what I want. I will not refuse those who come to me. I want you to be clean. I will. Secondly, now notice the Lord's power. We've seen his compassion. Notice with me, secondly, the Lord's power. Okay, now this is the climax. Remember the scene. You have the crowds there, perhaps, or the disciples looking on. And as soon as this man has walked into uh, the midst of them, they have parted like the Red Sea. 
No one get near this man. No one touch this man. A leper is among us. And you know what the law of Moses says. But Jesus, think about it. Think of the scene. We're meant to imagine this. Jesus stands still as a stone. He doesn't back away with the others fearing the touch of uncleanness. No, he stands still as a stone. And this leper perhaps limps and then falls down on his knees, bows before Jesus, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And we read in the narrative, Jesus stretched out his hand. He stretched out his hand. And at this moment, everyone looking on is saying, Jesus, don't do it. Don't touch him. You'll defile yourself. You'll become unclean. You can no longer be our Messiah. Outgo all their hopes and dreams that this man could save them. If he violates the law of Moses and touches the unclean man, he's going to contract defilement. Don't touch him, Jesus. Do not go near this man. But what do we read? He reaches out his hand and touches him. And everyone looking on, their hearts sink. But what happens? Immediately, his leprosy is cleansed. All of a sudden, the burns, the sores, they start to close up and to heal. The man stands erect. He's cleansed. What's happened? Do you see what's happened? Jesus, in touching that which is unclean, doesn't himself become unclean. Rather, the unclean that he touches becomes clean. That which was defiled, cursed, becomes holy, pure, clean, right before God. What's being revealed? Jesus can do what the law of Moses could never do. All the law of Moses could do was banish the unclean outside the camp, lest the unclean defile others within the camp. But Jesus does what Moses couldn't do. Jesus does what only God can do. When he, the pure, spotless, holy, righteous, clean one, touches that which is unclean, that which is defiled, he doesn't become unclean. No, that which is impure, unholy, defiled, wretched, unclean, with his touch, by his touch, by his divine power, is cleansed completely. Jesus says, I will be clean. And Jesus does with a touch what only God can do, what Moses could never do, what the priests could never do. You see, in Jesus, it's being revealed to us in these verses and in the subsequent accounts that we'll see in the coming weeks, the curse is reversed in him. In Jesus, disease is undone. In Jesus, death is defeated. In Jesus, sin is forgiven. In Jesus, salvation has come. The kingdom has come in him. God himself has come in him. Sin and death and disease have no power where Jesus is present. You see the implication. Matthew, the great author of this book, is trying to tell us if lepers are being cleansed, this man must be the Messiah. 
If lepers are being cleansed, the Messiah has come indeed. Now we begin to understand the words of Jesus to John in John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11. There, uh, John the Baptist is in prison. He's wondering if his whole life has been a failure, and he sends his disciples to Jesus. What does he tell them to do? He says, he says ask him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And what does Jesus say? He says, you go and tell John that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If lepers are being cleansed, Messiah has come indeed. Salvation, forgiveness, a solution. For all are defilement and uncleanness. Jesus, in healing this man, is revealing that he is God and that he is the Christ. He is revealing his kingdom and his kingdom's mighty power. He is revealing his authority to do what Moses could not. To make clean what was unclean. In closing now, two brief points of application and then we'll be done. Two points of application and then we'll be done. These are so obvious. Five-year-olds, six-year-olds among us, you could probably guess what I'm going to say. Number one, we, unclean sinners, must come to Jesus for cleansing. We, the unwashed masses, we, the dirty, the defiled, the unclean, defiled by sin, we, unclean sinners, must come to Jesus for cleansing. You appreciate the larger point here, right? If Jesus can cleanse a man of leprosy, he can cleanse us of everything. He can cleanse us of that which truly defiles us, that which truly makes us unclean. Leprosy doesn't defile us. Disorders and diseases don't defile us. They are symptoms of what defiles us. Friends, sin makes us unclean. Sin defiles us. Sin makes you dirty in need of cleansing. Sin makes me dirty in need of cleansing. Jesus will make this exact point later on in this gospel in Matthew 15. In verse 10, he says this, he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Stop thinking about these physical things. It's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. To send lepers outside the camp is pointing to a greater defilement, that which makes us unclean finally, namely our sins. Friends, our deepest need is not cleansing from our disorders and diseases. Our greatest need is that we would be cleansed from our sin, from evil thoughts, from murder, from adultery, from sexual immorality, from theft, 
from false witness, from slander. These things come out of our hearts and these things make us unclean and it's these things we're to bring to Jesus. To ask him in humility and in faith, Lord, if you will, you can make me a vile, wretched sinner. You can make me clean. I believe you can wash me of all that would make me filthy, all that would make me dirty, all that would bring me into condemnation and judgment. You can rid me of my sin, and you can forgive me. You can make me whiter than snow. You can cover me in the blood of your son Jesus, and I can be purged. I can be washed. I can be clean. I believe that about you. Would you cleanse me? Would you forgive my sins and make me well? Listen to me, friend, I tell you on the basis of the word of God as a minister of the gospel, you can go to Jesus with all your sexual sin, all your lust, all your pornography, and you can ask him to touch you in all your uncleanness and to cleanse you. You can in faith go to him with all your lies, all your slanders, and all the ways you've cut people down with your speech and ask him to cleanse you. You can go to him with all your addictions, all your drunkenness, and all of your substances, and you can ask him to cleanse you. You can go to him with all your bitterness and your strife and your anger and all the ways you've hurt people and harmed people and ask him to cleanse you. You can go to him with all your greed and your materialism and your worship of money and ask him to cleanse you. You can go to him with all your pride and all your self-pity and all your self-love and ask him to cleanse you. And if you go to him turning from these things and in faith look to him to wash you and to forgive you he will say the words to you he said to the leper i am willing be clean friends let us go to him with all that defiles us and all that makes us unclean all that makes us dirty inside all that you would be so ashamed if your nearest neighbor knew what was in your heart. Go to Jesus with that uncleanness and ask him, Lord, I believe if you are willing, you can cleanse me. I would ask that you touch that thing in me that makes me most ashamed. And I believe by your healing touch, your forgiving touch, you can save me. You can make me well. You can make me clean indeed. Wash me, David says, and I will be whiter than snow. Second application, and we'll be done. We, those who have been cleansed, I trust that's a lot of us here, been forgiven, been cleansed, been washed by the blood of Christ. We, those who have been cleansed, must constantly bring unclean sinners to Jesus. Once cleansed ourselves, we must become those who go to unclean people and who bring unclean people to Jesus. And friends, we must present Jesus in this way. Who is Jesus? He's not one who just wants, you know, self-righteous people to come and get dressed up really nice and perform various forms and ceremonies for 40 years and then die. No, Jesus came for sinners. We must present him as one who wants unclean and sinful people to come to him. This Jesus is not for the people who have their lives together and who have their lives all buttoned up. 
Jesus says, the well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Brothers and sisters, particularly those who are members of this church, you understand this religion, this gospel, this message, this church is for sinners, is for dirty people, sinful people, for unclean and impure people, for people who have done wicked and perverse things. The gospel is for spiritual lepers, for alcoholics, for fornicators, for homosexuals, for porn addicts, for drug addicts, for abusers, for thieves, for the greedy, for gluttons, and for the self-righteous 12-year-old Sunday school child who needs to be cleansed as much as anybody else. For the sweet old lady who has lived a self-righteous life her whole life, outwardly has appeared pure, but inwardly has never confessed her sins known only to her and to God. Emmanuel, it should be clear by the way we talk about ourselves and about Jesus that we know ourselves to be an unclean and sinful bunch. We are an unclean mess of sinners who need cleansing from 10,000 defilements, some more evident and obvious than others. But we've all got them. And we who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ should never be, listen, we should never be censorious toward any unclean person who needs Jesus. Unclean, unclean. What's he doing here? What's she doing here? Don't they know this is church for goodness sakes? We should never be censorious toward fellow sinners. Rather, we need to bring them to Jesus, and we need to speak to them this way. Are you a sinner? Are you unclean? Do you feel dirty inside? Yeah, I felt that. I've got some of that in me. Let me tell you about a man who can actually do something about it, who can do for you what those pills could never do could do for you what that sexual partner, the next one down the line, could never do. Could do for you what money could never do. Can actually cleanse your guilty conscience and make you pure, make you clean, make you holy, make you whiter than snow. What's your problem? What's your thing? Let me tell you about Jesus and what he did for me. We should talk to people like that. I think about this. This is kind of a, a weird thought, but I, I, I thought about this when I was a kid. I thought about it when I read this text. Have you ever imagined, like, the line of people to see Jesus? Like, they were all coming, right? Lost them all at once. So much so that people were, like, dropping through ceilings to, to, to get these people. There was a queue that would wait outside to see Jesus. Because all the healings didn't happen simultaneously. There was, like, a, a waiting room of sorts. Imagine the conversations in that waiting room. What are you coming for? Oh, God, leprosy. Isn't that obvious? Can't you see from the boils on my skin? I'm a leper. But I know, I know soon I'll be before the Lord and he can heal me. What's your problem? I've been blind from birth. I can't see. But I've heard this man heals the blind. Isaiah told us when he comes, he healed the blind. I'm here to see Jesus. 
You'd have those who were lame, some for decades, could never walk, and they're being carried in beds by their friends. I believe that when I see Jesus, he's going to heal me. He's going to give me legs that can walk. We hear testimonies in this church of sinners saved by the grace of God. What's your thing? I was caught up in a life of sexual sin, in slavery and in bondage. And I came to Jesus to be cleansed, and he saved me. Oh, I was caught up in all kinds of addictions, alcohol, pills, whatever you want to name. And I went from thing to thing to numb the pain, to make me well. But then I came to Jesus, and he saved me. You know, I think I lived my whole life without a solitary thought for anyone else's good other than number one. Jesus freed me from my bondage and slavery to myself, and he saved me from my sins. I grew up in church my whole life. I memorized the catechism. Never missed church, was there, whatever the doors are open, that's where the family van went. And I heard so many sermons, but I refused to bow the knee to Jesus. But in time, the gospel came to me, and I believed, and I was cleansed of all my sins. Many of you will know the name John Newton, uh, one of my favorite Christians. Uh, John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and he published 1773. We just celebrated 250 years of that wonderful hymn. John Newton uh, was an exceedingly wicked man. Uh, he did things that are known to us from eyewitness accounts that I couldn't repeat in unmixed company. Excuse me, mixed company. Horrible things. Horrible things. An exceedingly wicked man. And in time, God saved him. In a radical way. He was on a ship that was going down. And he cried out to God. The Lord was pleased to hear his cry. The ship survived. He was saved, and his life was transformed. But he never lost his sense of the powerful grace of God in forgiving and cleansing so wicked a sinner as he. He wrote a poem around the same time as Amazing Grace called The Leper. This is what he said. Oft as the leper's case I read, my own described I feel. Sin is a leprosy indeed, which none but Christ can heal. A while I would have passed for well, and strove my spots to hide, till it broke out incurable, too plain to be denied. Then from the saints I sought to flee, and dreaded to be seen. I thought they all would point at me and cry, unclean, unclean. What anguish did my soul endure, till hope and patience ceased. The more I strove myself to cure, the more the plague increased. While thus I lay distressed, I saw the Savior passing by. To Him, though filled with shame and awe, I raised my mournful cry. Lord, Thou canst heal me if Thou wilt. For thou canst all things do. Oh, cleanse my leprous soul from guilt. My filthy heart renew. He heard. 
and with a gracious look, pronounce the healing word. I will be clean. And while he spoke, I felt my health restored. Come lepers, seize the present hour. The Savior's grace to prove. He can relieve, for he is power. He wills, for he is love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you full of our uncleanness, our defilements, our sins. We say to you, we have no hope of cleansing apart from you. What we need is a Savior who is willing and powerful to save. We need power to heal and cleanse. We need a heart of love and compassion and mercy to forgive. Father, if, if any here are giving in to the pretense oh, that we are not in need of cleansing, that our conscience is perfectly clean, that I don't need a Savior, I pray, Father, that in grace and mercy you would intrude and you would reveal to them the dirt, the filth, the defilement, the uncleanness of their sin. Reveal it to them. And then, Father, please sweetly show them Jesus Christ, who is willing, who is willing to receive, to cleanse, to restore, to heal, to forgive, to be a Savior for spiritual lepers, for sinners such as we are. Lord, please wash us. Wash us again. Wash us afresh. Make us whiter than snow. Would you in mercy save us all? We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.